I'll ask for a show of hands this morning. How many of you have ever been in a jam so tight that you thought, I'm going to pretend to be insane, and that's how I'll get out of this situation? Anybody ever done that before? I, I haven't. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> oh, you didn't pretend? Uh, that was just genuinely the case? In Psalm 34 this morning, we have a superscription or an introduction to the psalm that says the background for Psalm 34 is when David pretended to be insane before Abimelech, who drove him away and he left. And that's why we read from 1 Samuel chapter 21 this morning for our scripture reading. We know the broad context of that section of 1 Samuel. David has already defeated Goliath. He's already received the praise of many of the Israelite people. He has already been anointed by the prophet Samuel to become the next king of Israel because God had rejected Saul. Saul had disobeyed God and God had rejected him. And so he anointed David to be the next king in his place. We also read that Saul was uh, beginning more and more to descend into not a pretend madness, but a true madness. And Saul was filled with jealousy. He was filled with rage, and he wanted to destroy David. He did not want David around. He thought of David as a rival, as someone who was there to uh, usurp his place. And so Saul was on the hunt. For David, and David was running from Saul, going from place to place. We read at the beginning of chapter 21 of 1 Samuel that David went to the temple, and there he was able to, or the tabernacle, there he was able to secure uh, some help from the priest and to get some sustenance. From there, he went on to the king of Gath, which here in this superscription says is Abimelech. 1 Samuel 21 names him as Achish. Some have seen a a disagreement there, but most likely what's going on is Abimelech is maybe seen as a title, perhaps, something along the lines of Pharaoh in Egypt. Abimelech simply means my father is king, and so could be used as something of a title from one generation to the next to show the succession of kings. And so there doesn't seem to be any conflict between Abimelech as a title and Achish as his name as 1 Samuel 21 describes him. And so David goes to Gath, which is a Philistine city. And we know the history of the Israelites and the Philistines, don't we? Uh, We know the history of David with the Philistines. How David defeated their mighty warrior, Goliath, in 1 Samuel 17. And so David goes to Gath for a place of refuge because Saul is chasing him, hunting him down. And then as soon as David gets there, the people start murmuring, they start talking, they start gossiping about this new arrival, and they say, hey, isn't this David? We've heard about this man. Isn't isn't he the one that's supposed to be the king? In fact, they call him the king of the land in 1 Samuel 21. Isn't he the one of whom it's sung, Saul killed his thousands, but David is tens of thousands? And so the word started to spread around that David was there and who he was. And David was afraid. Now, my purpose this morning is not necessarily to 
analyze or, or debate whether or not David's actions were right or wrong or what was influencing him there to pretend to be insane, to go mad. He used that as an opportunity to escape and to get out of that situation. He was afraid of what might happen with Achish, the king of Gath, knowing who he was and knowing what David had done to the Philistines and that he might try to get revenge on him, might try to kill him. David used that pretend insanity as a moment of escape. We don't know. I I don't know that the scriptures necessarily fault him for that. They don't specifically say that he was in disobedience to the Lord in that, but it does not present him in the best of light when it says that he was afraid and that he used this pretense to escape. Nevertheless, I'm glad that God sometimes uses even the broken things that we do to help us. And whether or not this was a right action of David, an action that was driven by faith or more from fear, Regardless, Psalm 34 attributes it to the deliverance of the Lord. And so what we have in Psalm 34 is actually a psalm of thanksgiving in which David is expressing praise to God, thanks to God for the fact that God came to his aid and rescued him. And so the first part of the psalm really follows the classic format for a psalm of thanksgiving generally in a psalm of thanksgiving, and there are several examples of this throughout the book of Psalms, is it starts out with a word of praise. It starts out with uh, praise and extolling the Lord. And in a psalm of thanksgiving, almost without fail, it will mention some crisis. It will mention some difficulty, some instance in which the psalmist was faced with danger, with trouble, with sickness of some kind maybe, and the Lord delivered. And it's for that that the psalmist is praising and thanking God. Much of this psalm fits that pattern. But there's also some aspects of this psalm that fit more the, the pattern of a wisdom psalm. In which the psalmist is trying to convey, to teach biblical wisdom. Uh, the difference between God's path and the wrong path, as we saw last week in Psalm 1. And so this psalm is both one of thanksgiving as well as one of teaching of expressing wisdom. And I want to walk through this psalm together with you. And I want us to see in the first three verses that David says, rejoice with me. It is a call to rejoice. And what I want to do is I want to read through the psalm and then we'll walk through it together. Verse one says, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear. And rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called, and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. And he delivers them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his holy people. For those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. 
Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their cry. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to blot out their name from the earth. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted, and saves those who are crushed in spirit. The righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. He protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. Evil will slay the wicked. The foes of the righteous will be condemned. The Lord will rescue his servants. No one who takes refuge in him will be condemned. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time that we have today to to worship and to rejoice with your servant David, to praise you as he calls us to join him in praise. We have the opportunity to learn from his wisdom as he teaches us in this psalm. Father, I pray that you would bless this time. May it be time of worship and of learning. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. In the first few verses, David says, bless the Lord with me or rejoice with me. He begins in the singular, but then he moves to the plural. He starts with himself and then he moves to the whole congregation of Israel. He starts with himself and he says, I will extol the Lord at all times. The word there is to bless. I will bless the Lord. How do you bless the Lord? How do you bless the Lord? How do you, how can you make God better? How can you make God greater? And the answer is you can't. He says in verse two, I will glory in the Lord. Verse three, he says, glorify the Lord with me. Literally to make great to magnify the Lord. One writer put it this way, human praise can never make God greater than he already is. But we may join together in acknowledging that greatness. So we can't make God any greater. So when he says, bless the Lord or extol the Lord, lift the Lord high, make him greater, magnify him, there's a sense in which we can't do that because God is already infinitely great. He is as great as he ever will be, and there's no greatness that can be any greater than he already is. But we can acknowledge that. We can extol that. We can proclaim that. We can do that individually, and we can do it communally as a people. And so he starts with himself, I will extol the Lord at all times, even in times of difficulty, which the psalm refers to. Can we do that? Can we extol the Lord? Can we praise the Lord at all times, even in times of difficulty? This is David's resolution, his vow, if you will. I desire, I vow to praise, to extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. That's what we see in, in Hebrew poetry often is parallelism. Parallel lines where one line says something and then the next line says essentially the same thing with different words. That's what we have going on here in verse 1. I will extol the Lord at all times. I will praise. His praise will always be on my lips. So extol and praise go together. And then at all times and always be on my lips go together. They're essentially parallel lines expressing the same idea. 
but for poetic emphasis. In verse 2, he says, I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. There's that call to the community. There's that call. He moves from the first person singular to the plural. Let everyone who hears this praise of mine, let you hear and respond, even you who are afflicted. Those of you who are down, those of you who are in difficult situations, may you also rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. He specifically calls out to the afflicted because that's how he saw himself. A little bit later, he's going to call himself this poor man, this afflicted man. So he saw him as being in times of affliction, and he knew that there were others who were in times of affliction, and he could call them to join together with him, knowing that they shared a a common lot in life, if you will, of affliction and difficulty. But even in those times of affliction and difficulty, he's calling them to join together with him and praise the Lord. Let us praise his name together. And so he says, rejoice with me. In verse 4, he begins to describe the Lord as his deliverer. So verses 4 through 7, he exclaims, the Lord is my deliverer. In verse 4, he says, I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Some have wondered, what is it in this psalm that specifically links it to that moment in 1 Samuel 21? The the title or the, the introduction to this psalm says, when he pretended to be insane before Abimelech and that king drove him away and he left. What is it in this psalm that ties it to that event? Well, let me mention a couple of things. One is these superscriptions, these titles are, are very old. They're very ancient and they're in the copies of the Hebrew scriptures as well as the Greek scriptures that we have. And so these are very ancient, very old titles, introductions. But we also know that they were not necessarily there at the beginning from the psalmist's hands. So, for example, this one, David is talking in the first person, but the superscription is talking in third person of David. And so, most likely, this could have been added later, perhaps even by Ezra, one of the scribes of Israel. So, it's very old, very ancient. All the manuscripts that we have have these superscriptions, but there seems to be evidence that they weren't there when the psalmist first wrote them but were were later added perhaps by other biblical writers who compiled the Psalms together, compiled the scriptures together, such as Ezra and his scribes. We also know that this title most likely was not there at the beginning because this Psalm is an acrostic. So it's an acrostic Psalm, meaning that each verse begins with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And so it walks from essentially from A to Z, even though the Hebrew letters are different from Aleph to Tav, And it walks through each of these Hebrew letters. That's why there's 22 verses in the psalm, because there are 22 verses in the, or 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And so verse one, I will extol the Lord. That's where the A starts, essentially. So that's where the the hymn starts. And so the title was most likely added later. What is it that made this connection? Most likely it is verse number four, where the psalmist David says, I sought the Lord, he answered me, 
and he delivered me from all my fears. The link to 1 Samuel 21 is the word fear. Because in 1 Samuel 21, when he knew that Achish, the king of Gath, had heard about these reports of David, that the news was being spread around him, it says that he was afraid. It said that he feared. It's the same Hebrew word. And sometimes that's the way the scribes worked, is they would see links, verbal links, or, or word links between passages. And so they saw this, this linkage of this word fear between 1 Samuel 21 and Psalm 34, and they connected them together. And so David was in a time of fear. He was in a time of difficulty, and he cried out to the Lord. And Psalm 34 says that the Lord is the one who delivered him. Now, the human means that David may have used is to pretend that he was insane. May not have been the best method, but God used that. And God did indeed rescue David. And we could even see this in the larger context even beyond just that one moment in which he was in Gath, and we can extend it out to the broader context around it, and we can see that David, or that God rescued David on many occasions, didn't he? On many occasions, on many instances, there were times when David was afraid, and he called out to God, and God rescued him. He heard his prayer. And so this is a, a praise of the Lord's deliverance. In verse 5, he says, Those who look to him are radiant, bright shining. Their faces are never covered with shame. In other words, you can be confident, you can be secure, you can have a joy that radiates from your face, even in times of difficulty, because you can call on the Lord and he rescues. Verse 6, This poor man called. I, I was poor. I was down in the depths. I was afflicted. I was in humiliation. He called out, and the Lord heard him, and he saved him out of all of his troubles. One of the things that's interesting about the Psalms, and I think Psalm 34 is the same, is that the way these Psalms read, they're intentionally very generic in describing the difficulty, the, the, the tough situation that the psalmist is going through. So that's why you don't see any clear, very specific, detailed historical links between Psalm 34 and that moment in David's life. The reason is because most Psalms are, are phrased in such a way so that they can apply not only to the psalmist at that time, but also to us 2,000, 3,000 years later. So we can read verse 6. This poor man called, and the Lord heard him, and he saved him out of all of his troubles. And we can, we can see that we don't have to be in Gath with a king trying to kill us for this verse to apply to us, right? We can be in any difficult situation of life. We can be in a time of financial poverty. We can be in a time of, of sickness and health. Uh, we can be in a time of... Uh, where people have turned on us and we feel like we have enemies or, or seeking to undo us. Whatever the situation, we can call out to God in those times, can't we? And he hears and he delivers. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. And we can see in that historical 
references to the time of Israel in which the Lord did literally come and with his angel or angels come and rescue Israel out of the dangers that they had. And he uses that picture to describe how the Lord can deliver us individually in our times of trouble. He encamps around them. He he surrounds them as a defense and he delivers them. So rejoice with me, he says, because the Lord is my deliverer. If we just think about those two main ideas, can we not join with David in singing this psalm? Rejoice with me because the Lord is our deliverer. And we can even take this to a higher level, can't we? And we can see that the Lord watches over us and he delivers us, not only from the earthly troubles that we experience, but in a much higher way, he has delivered us eternally, hasn't he? He has delivered us to where now we can be called sons and daughters of God and we can have the hope of eternal life. And regardless of what happens in this world, we have a future hope to look forward to. So rejoice with me because the Lord is our deliverer. He is our rescuer. In verses 8 through 10, the psalmist David says, Come and experience the Lord's goodness. Come, experience the Lord's goodness. He says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. David is saying, I'm declaring to you how great the Lord is. I'm declaring to you that the Lord is a deliverer and he helps those in times of trouble come and experience it. Come and experience it. Taste and see that the Lord is good. It's a very clear metaphor, isn't it? You can can look at a nice pan of lasagna and you can believe that it's going to be good. But it sure helps to be able to try it out, doesn't it? Take a bite to taste, to see, to know, not only in a mental way, but to know in an experiential way that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And and what that means is, it means we have to trust. It means we have to believe. In order to to see and to taste and experience the goodness of the Lord, to taste and see that the Lord can deliver, there have to be times in which we're going through trouble and times in which we trust the Lord to deliver. And then we can taste it. And we can see it. We can experience that goodness of the Lord. And we can experience that blessing of the one who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his holy people. For those who fear him lack nothing. The fear of the Lord is the Old Testament way of describing a true believer and a follower of God. The fear of the Lord. It's someone who fears, yes, in a sense of awe and of trembling, but also in a sense of honor and reverence. But that fear of the Lord brings into it faith. Faith and a desire to follow the Lord in his ways. Fear the Lord, you his holy people, because they who fear him lack nothing. Now, there will be times of difficulty, right? The psalmist acknowledges it in this, in this psalm. So it's not as if he's here taking up a prosperity gospel theology, right? 
He's not saying like Joel Osteen, if you're a Christian, everything's going to go great for you. And as long as you're doing what's right and you're in the Lord's will, then you're always going to be prosperous and blessed. That's Joel Osteen, T.D. Jake's theology. And he's got the Rolex and the Ferrari to prove it. Literally, he's got a Ferrari, okay? So, but that's not what the psalmist is saying here. He's saying, he acknowledges there's difficult times. He's been through them himself. Later in the psalm, he will also acknowledge in verse 19 that the righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers them. So it's not as if there's never going to be a bump in the road if you're following the Lord and you're fearing him. But what he's looking at is the bigger picture, isn't he? He's looking at the bigger picture and that from the larger picture, from a long life point of view, or even we could say from an eternal point of view, that the one who fears the Lord is going to end up in the Lord's blessings. And he's going to be delivered, even if he goes through times of hardship and trial. So, fear the Lord. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. So come, experience the Lord's goodness. Then in verses 11 through 16, he says, listen to my instruction. Listen to my instruction. And this is the part of the psalm that sounds just like a wisdom psalm. In fact, you could take 11 through 16 and almost put it in the book of Proverbs. Because that's what it sounds like. He says, come, my children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. In other words, he's describing the right way that we saw last week in Psalm 1. The the blessed way of the man who does not walk in the way of sinners or sit in their seat or dwell with the scorners. That is the blessed way. That is the right way. That's what he's describing here. Follow the Lord, fear him, and there will be his eternal blessing on you. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their cry. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil to blot out their name from the earth. It's that sharp distinction that we saw last week in Psalm 1 between the right path and the wrong path, and they're two different ways, and they're two different destinies. This is biblical wisdom. And he's encouraging the people who are listening to him to choose the right path. Listen to my instruction. And then he concludes in verses 17 through 22 with his final call to fear the Lord and he will be your deliverer. Fear the Lord and he will be your deliverer. So he started out early with, with him saying, the Lord is my deliverer, he's rescued me. Now at the end of the psalm, he's saying on the basis of the Lord's wisdom, fear the Lord and he will be your deliverer. So he says in verse 17, the righteous cry out and the Lord hears them and he delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. The righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. So fear the Lord, trust him, walk in his ways, the righteous person, and the Lord watches over them. The Lord delivers them. Fear him and he will be your deliverer. He says at the, in verse 20, 
He protects all his bones, and not one of them will be broken. If that sounds familiar, it's because it's quoted in the Gospels of Jesus Christ. And it says that it was fulfilled when Jesus was on the cross and the centurions came along to make sure that the criminals were dead. And normally what they would do to ensure that they died is they would break their bones. Literally, they would break their legs so they could no longer push up to draw in breath and they would die of asphyxiation. But when they came to Jesus, they saw he was already dead. And instead of breaking his bones, they thrust a spear up into his side and out came out blood and water or blood and perhaps even like a a cardiac type fluid, which showed that he had already died. So they did not break his bones. And it says this was to fulfill this verse. He protects all his bones and not one of them will be broken. And it's interesting because here it's in the context of David, isn't it? And the way that David is describing it, he's describing it as a metaphor for the way that the Lord protects those who walk in his ways. But in a very literal way, this this language, these words are picked up in the New Testament and shown to be fulfilled, to be pictured in Jesus Christ. And isn't Jesus the preeminent example of a righteous follower of God? Jesus is the preeminent example of a righteous follower of God. And he literally had his bones protected by the Lord. Now, the righteous person may have many troubles. Jesus had many troubles, didn't he? He had many troubles. He went through times of difficulty, rejection. He went through the ultimate trouble of death on a cross and being buried. But the end of the verse says, but the Lord delivers him from them all. And the Lord delivered Jesus from the grave, didn't he? So he watched over him. He protected him. Jesus is the ultimate example of the righteous person and the ultimate example of the Lord's deliverance of his righteous person. And he concludes in verse 21 and 22 by saying, evil will slay the wicked. The foes of the righteous will be condemned. That's their end. So you you take the wrong path and here's the end that you will get death and destruction, but the right path, the path of wisdom, the path of fear of the Lord, the path of faith, the Lord will rescue his servants and no one who takes refuge in him will be condemned. Reminds me of John three, doesn't it? Those who believe in the son, those who take refuge in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will not be condemned. Romans eight, one There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, to those who have taken refuge in him. So the encouragement of this psalm is fear the Lord. I might put it in New Testament terminology and say, believe and repent, trust in the Lord, take refuge in him, and he will deliver you. He will save you. He will be your rescuer. And yes, there may be times of trouble, The righteous may go through times of trouble, but the Lord will ultimately deliver his children. And he will be a source of strength and encouragement and help to them throughout their lives. He will be like the angel of the Lord who encamps around his people. So be thankful for that and rejoice together in that and praise and extol the Lord for his deliverance and for what he does for his people. May that be an encouragement to you today. 
a reassurance of the Lord's presence in your life and of his deliverance, but may it also spur you on to praise and to worship our great God. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father, our God, we're reminded in this psalm from your servant David how great of a deliverer you are. You are the mighty Savior, our Redeemer, our Rescuer. Father, we were dead. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were estranged from you, without God, without hope in the world. We were far away. And Lord, you came and delivered us. You brought us near. You breathed new life into us. You made us alive in Christ. By grace, we are saved. It is a gift from you. Father, thank you for delivering us. Thank you for being our great deliverer. Thank you for walking with us, Lord, through times of trial and difficulty. Thank you for giving us your indwelling spirit who gives us peace and assurance and reminds us, testifies with our spirit that we are in fact your children. Thank you for the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in accomplishing our redemption and also in showing us your faithfulness in delivering your righteous servant. You delivered him even through death and brought him back to life. In that hope, Father, we can trust. Father, I pray that you would help us to trust you, to take refuge in you, to experience and to taste your deliverance, and then, Lord, to respond in praise and thanks, as this psalm teaches us to do. We pray in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.